connect them. Dry bones. Yeah, the world of the bones, baby. That's right. That's why you're here. Welcome to the Boney Island Whitefish. This is the penultimate bone. Indeed. And which bone is it, Andrew? Uh, it's <laughs> it's the bone. Any bone. It's the um, bone in your pinky toe. Uh-huh. Uh, the one that's like just just back from the very tip. Uh, but it really hurts when you crack it on the coffee table. Two a.m. Are you suggesting a metatarsal, perhaps? God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's possible. Possible. It's, th- I'm just a booth. I'm just a booth rocking in the free world. I don't know names for science stuff. Yeah, you just know. Hey, you just know. Uh, you don't know anything about what it's called. You just know that uh, the witness is much more cooperative if you step on it. That's right. I hit it with mm-hmm. a ball-peen hammer. You just know what kind of quirky threats you could make to uh, torture someone as a member of the FBI in the conduct of your official duties. Yeah, I just know that uh, back when I served in Iraq, remember <laughs> fifty lives, hot shot elite sniper. Well, that that only includes his confirmed kills. It doesn't include all of his unconfirmed kills or the people who survived uh, whatever he did to them in black sites, which I assume mm-hmm. involved. Uh, hitting their pinky toes with ball peen hammers, you know, cutting them yeah, off or, with wire cutters. Yeah, cutting them off with a ball peen hammer. Or um, uh, 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 the people he killed uh, during the show Bones, which I believe is at least one this season. Yeah, it's true. The crazy doctor, the cult doctor. Uh, he was so quick on that one. Bang, bang. And he wasn't even recertified to use his gun after his bad case of coma brain. <laughs> yeah, well, it, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, Dear listener, the episode of Bones we're supposed to talk about today, The Boy with the Answer, is, I think, the worst episode of Bones we've seen? Yes. You say? Absolutely. Yes, by far. By far and away. And here's the other problem. If you were to say, oh, the worst episode of Bones they've seen, great. What kind of wild magics are going to be suggested to be at play? What is, a- what is Angela's computer going to do that's sort of still impossible, that just only works because of like it's a quantum computer because of the plot uh, no it's a, they turned bones into a courtroom procedural written by people who again have watched a courtroom procedural once or twice um i i, I think one of the ladies from criminal minds is in it as the villain um <laughs> and, I think, and, go ahead i think the uh the dark arts on display in this episode uh is the forensic evidence being given in a courtroom trial and actually convincing a jury to convict someone? <laughs> and um, so I, I'd like. I'll, we'll, I think we'll go through the episode like a bit, but I, you know what I kind of want to do? Mm-hmm. I kind of, I kind of want to make this episode a little bit of a stock take, a penultimate episode stock take. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but first, I think some updates need to be given. Oh, perhaps, perhaps a breakfast slash dinner update. How on earth did we get started doing breakfast? I don't know. It became very, very permanent. <laughs> I think it's because we both really enjoy um, cookery. Yeah, it's true. We both, we both, we really like our food, and so you know, I, I want to talk about it. 
and they don't let me talk about it on TF. I'm always too busy talking about, you know, a startup or some obscure financing thing. I can't say, hey, everyone, I just made a new thing of sauerkraut today because no one's interested in that except the listeners of this and hopefully you. You can't talk about it because everyone needs you to talk about who's holding the big bejeweled scepter in Parliament this week. You know? That's right. Uh, that's right. Oh, oh no! They let, they they let the they let the investment banker do it again, and it turns out he's personally profiting from the COVID vaccine that we're buying. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that's not a bit. That's real. Um, oh boy! That's what's happening? That's that's yeah, the chancellor Rishi Sunak uh, cannot confirm if he will not profit. Uh, personally, from the UK's decision to buy certain vaccines. I feel like it's pretty easy for me to confirm that, personally. Yeah. I don't have to think about it for very long. I'll say that. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> it, as, for me, that's a core competency. Yeah. <laughs> confirming that <laughs> I have not profited from that decision, except that I'll be like released back into the world and be able to go to clubs again. Um, but hey, sticking to the subject, uh, today, uh, I had a... Um, I had a, 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 a pasta for, for dinner, a, a spaghetti for those um, who are keeping score at home, uh, with a, a tomato sauce that I made using a homemade mirepoix base that I made the other day. I've been keeping in the fridge, uh, sealed in oil. I served it with some fresh basil uh, that was um, grown, in my, grown in my garden, the last little bits of, of the fresh basil from the garden. Um, and uh, then that was sort of made into a very vibrant red uh, tomato sauce, which I had with uh, some Parmesan that I bought at a nearby market. And boy, was it delicious. And also uh, as a, included in that were several uh, very nice ve- vegan sausages got really good at some point like in the last two years. They got super good. Not in this country. Anyway. Oh, man. Vegan sausages are amazing. They taste like when I was young, when I was growing up, um, my, my parents used, because there are a lot of Mennonites uh, in the area where I'm from, you know, the people, the Ger- German Christians who do the old timey stuff. Um, and there was a, a butcher shop called Pilgrims. It was run by Mennonites. It was a Mennonite butcher. They had like sawdust on the floor and all things of that nature. Uh, and they used to sell these sort of absolutely magnificent um, chicken and sun-dried tomato sausages uh, from this like sort of small farm. And I find the vegan sausages that I'm buying taste quite a bit like those. So I'm, I'm sort of completely you know thrilled, obviously. That, um, that is that that's back but you they had a little farmhouse you could go and i remember i'd go with my dad and they'd be they'd be there and you know my dad would be buying summer another large quantity of meat um and uh i i then they would just they would always have like they had this like wooden uh, wooden they had this cast iron wood burning stove they used to like just like when you walked in just chop a few bits of like rounds of sausage and toss them on top of the stove and then they would just sort of cook on that um and so i was just i was thinking about all of that today while i was having those uh, admittedly, uh, vegan uh, sausages on my... Um, the, the, the Mennonites would be ashamed of you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, tis, tis, no, tis no sausage English. Uh, when, um, when Lucy came back from Hawaii to Australia, uh, due to the super plague, due to Captain Trips, um, she went out and like bought a bunch of vegan food at the supermarket because um, it was her preference to eat veganly. Um, she's not religious about it or anything. Uh, she ate everything that I cook. Uh, a lot of that has meat in it. And loves a steak, you know. But yeah, she, she bought a bunch of vegan things from the supermarket here and 
just went through this process item by item of giving it a go and then saying that's fucking terrible and not eating the rest of it. Um, her and Ben have discussed that basically uh, vegan technology is light years ahead in the US and I assume the UK. Like we only just got the sort of um, like the the Beyond Burger Whopper kind of thing. Oh, right. In yeah, the last, I want to say the last couple of years, you know. So, yeah, we're still we're still very on that kind of like um, veggie sausage kind of thing. Um, they do have there is more stuff in stores now, but mm-hmm. I, I gather it's not good. Lucy had some like vegan tuna in a can. Uh, I don't think said, they, I, vegan fish. I don't see that. Maybe, but I, it's um, it's it's really shocking, like how good of it, it how good, how well, it, how good it has become. Um, where it's, um, it's one of these things where I, again, I, I'm like, like Lucy, I prefer, I'll sort of, eat, I'm not vegan, but I'll prefer to eat vegetarian when I can. It's like, I'll still have cheese and, and all that. Um, but like, oh, I can't see you going without cheese. No, of course not. Me? Are you kidding? <laughs> that was my, my third job. In fact, cause I, my first three jobs when I was young, uh, the first was at a winery called Stratus. It was, um, a very nice sort of winery in the Niagara. Niagara region in a microclimate, as I like to refer to it as. Uh, I don't actually, my priggish co-hosts like to refer to it as the microclimate. I refer to it as a microclimate one time. Um, <laughs> and now it's microclimate this, microclimate that. It's, it's real. It's an actual concept. But no. Um, and then that was the first one. The second one was at like an upscale restaurant called Rest, uh, which I, where I was like basically like, I was like, hey, my kid needs to learn how to cook. You should teach him how to cook. And so my, my first job was sort of in the kitchen there getting yelled at and chopping stuff. Uh, my, well, so I had those first jobs concurrently. And then my sort of third job, so to speak, was at a store with the worst name possible, uh, but where I learned quite a bit about like meat and cheese and stuff. Um, it was called Cheese Secrets. Um, oh, I'm having a vision of like, um, you know, when they open like an ancient sarcophagus. Uh, yes. Okay. And then, uh, and then there's like a smaller sarcophagus inside, and then you pop that open, and uh, wrapped in cloth, the archaeologists start tugging at the edge of it, and then go, "Is this cheesecloth?" <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! We've opened the sarcophagus of cheese secrets. What what secrets could this tomb hold? How well aged is this blue? You know. <laughs> um. Well, it, it turns out I was very bad at it because I'd keep having to like sometimes also like make sandwiches. But um, at the time I had very very shaky hands, and so while I could like I don't know I can I can sort of you know dice an onion at this point still in seconds flat just from uh, rest, but I always had a lot of trouble slicing bread straight. I had a real dish issue making panini. <laughs> um, so that the secret was, uh, don't get a sandwich if I was working there. So if you're going to that, if you're going to the Canadian town of Niagara on the Lake in about 2006, um, and you see me working at Cheese Secrets, go with one of the others for, to make order your sandwich, a sandwich that day. Yeah, be like, mm, no, thank you. I know that this is. It's going to be such a diagonal cut on this panini bun that all of the tomato is going to basically cause one end of the sandwich to disintegrate. Oh, so, no. No, thank you. Yeah, it was awful. 
Uh, but I learned a lot about telling the difference between my Duaniers and my Morbiers, um, my Dragon's Breath, and uh, my Bleu Benedictin, etc., etc., etc. I moved so much Oka. I never <laughs> believe how much Oka I moved at that place. Um, oh, boy. My, my old, one of my few memories of working there was um, uh, some, some, some like heavily made up like uh, Italian-American but Canadian girls came in once. And I said, uh, hi, what can I get you? And then they were like, eh, maybe not, and left. And then uh, the sort of guy who was like the chef, it was like a cheese store, sort of a rest sandwich place, blah, blah, blah. It was very nice. The guy, like the chef who worked there was like a, like a proper chef. I don't remember his name. But I remember he turned to me. I know what he intended to say, which is, ah, you scared off the Kardashian-looking girls. But instead, what he said was, ah, you scared off the Kardashian-looking girl. <laughs> Not quite the same. Well, well, hey, you know what? If, if you che- if, have you seen them without makeup? Am I right? This is the man show. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm Jimmy Kimmel from before he started crying about politics. God, I was just thinking about whether or not uh, whether or not the Man Show was a similar vintage to Bones, and I guess there would have been overlap in the sort of later years of the Man Show. I think there would have been. Would would Kimmel still have been on it, for example? Because Kimmel was already a late night host by the time pickup artists were like famous enough to be going on late night shows. Well. In the very the very end of the Man Show was when they replaced Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla with Joe Rogan and Doug Stanhope for two years. Oh, it didn't touch. It just barely didn't touch. It, um, it was first episode of Bones, September thirteenth, two thousand five. Last episode of the Man Show, June nineteenth, two thousand four. Huh. Yeah, like I mean, look, passing you, in the night, you know. <laughs> no, no. Um, be honest, I don't think any, uh, wow, I'm looking at some uh, notable segments from The Man Show, and good gracious, there are some. Uh, one recurring skit featured Kimmel's impression of former Utah jazz star Carl Malone. Kimmel would appear in blackface while wearing a bald cap and a bodysuit. Pretty cool. Yeah, interesting. Uh, the, impression the impression pokes fun at Malone's well-known inarticulacy. Ooh, boy. Oh. Uh, that's, that's, that's something, huh? Didn't um, I feel like... I'm trying to remember, because uh, Jimmy Fallon has apologized for doing blackface, mm-hmm. I believe, um, in old skits and stuff. I'm trying to remember whether Jimmy Kimmel has ever apologized for doing this or whether it's just something I see people post in replies to him on Twitter whenever there's like a, a viral clip of him saying everybody should get health care. Mm. People go, uh, oh, yeah, well, how's this you in blackface? Yeah, uh, man, all that, all that, all that, all that is quite something. Uh, he did apologize for it. Uh, it was this year. In uh, June of this year, I didn't know. I've just I don't follow any of this, so I didn't know any of that had even happened. Um, well, good on him for getting there eventually to the realization that blackface is not so good. Um, I hope the Dutch people join him sometime soon. 
They're right. Uh, yeah, the, the the entire country of the Netherlands issues a national apology. Uh, for, no, they didn't actually. I, I looked into this. Uh, in fact, I think it was in the replies to your one of your tweets. You might have seen this. Someone's like, "No, Zwarte Piet is not the not racist. It's, it's not about the boy who climbs <laughs> chimneys." Oh yeah, we have been we have been talking about this for weeks and weeks on Bunda Vista now. Um, but yeah, it's it's incredibly funny to me that they have been doing the blackface guy for so long that the the interim solution is to do a guy with slightly less blackface mm-hmm. uh, and say, oh, yeah, see, well, yeah. that's what he was the whole time. <laughs> exactly. Just here, yeah, I was a tan. What if, uh, I, what if I just wiped off some of the blackface with a handkerchief? Would that make you happy? Yeah, what if I, what if I did like a, like a comedy drama thing, you know, and, and instead it was um, about the duality of man? Hmm. Stood up on stage and I jumped from side to side. Maybe did some sort of duet. Oh boy! Exactly. But uh, so yeah, anyway, that's I. I basically had uh, that dinner, which caused me to remember, uh, like uh, Marcel Proust, uh, all of the things that I have now uh, got, gone on to say. Huh. Uh, it caused me to remember uh, going into the butcher shop and getting sausages cooked on the cast iron stove. It caused me to remember that comment about the Cardassian girls. And unfortunately, it caused me to remember the man show, which I did watch when I was like 12 and 13. And I was like, oh, boy. Cool. Oh, and Naked News is up next. You know? <laughs> God, they used to just... what, was, what was happening with sexuality in the early 2000s? I guess, I guess it was the very beginning of people realizing that you could like put a titty on TV um, you know, South Park starting to push those boundaries of saying slurs and getting paid, um, that kind of thing. Maybe I should make some more sausages. Yeah. The... Make some more su- or, or maybe you should like um, ch- change the tone of Bunta Vista such that it replicates the kind of sort of empty asexuality of <laughs> the early 2000s, apparently. It's uh, it's funny seeing like I I don't want to call it discourse because it isn't. Um, the the whole thing that popped off on Twitter a few days ago of Harry Styles being in Vogue wearing like uh, some dresses and stuff, and all of the usual suspects like Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens going, "This is the corruption of Western society, the downfall of civilization." Uh, from as everybody on the face of the earth pointed out the most masculine people in the world like Ben Shapiro and Ian Miles Chong mm-hmm. but um but yeah it does it does sort of make you go oh cool so basically what you guys are are talking about is the 1999 conception of masculinity mhm uh right. i'm i'm going to drink a big Stein of beer with my friends and watch a girl jumping on a trampoline. That's masculinity. Yeah, but, well, it's also, I think it's, it's the way I sort of think about how like the Ben Shapiro's and Ian Miles Chong's and stuff think about the world is, and it's because it's also how Britain thinks about its history, uh, how these guys think about culture. It's the right answer is the first thing that I think based on based on kind of the overall milieu of what culture was for most of my life. It's the first thing I think. And whatever the first thing I think is, 
is right. And trying to make me think of another thing is either abuse, harassment, historical revisionism, etc. It is it's the same way that like because like tons of houses in Britain that are maintained by the National Trust were built with like money that was deeply connected to the slave trade. Right? Like a lot of those were profits from the slave trade built those houses. And then the uh, National Trust started being like, by the way, at, like because National Trust like maintains old stately homes that you can go and see and walk through, kind of like museums. Um, as, because if they didn't, like all the people who like families lived in them and stuff, they're all broke now. They can't afford to like do anything with them. Um, and so the National Trust like buys them and takes them over and then sets you up kind of for your life and makes you fine. Um, and they've started saying, by the way, like profits from slavery built this house. And there was a huge row in Parliament about it. On the basis that the National Trust was uh, succumbing to the cult of the woke and unwriting history. And it's like, no, it's adding in a detail that makes you feel a bit different about it if you, or like makes you have to claim something different about it, even if you feel, if anything, better about it now. Yeah, it's that's made you, th- yeah. That is truly the, the opponent of this type of person is the, the villain known as context. You know, like just adding a few extra details that make you go, oh, actually, this is Mm -hmm. this is different. Very very much like um, very much like Australia's history of colonialism and enslavement and kidnapping and murder of indigenous populations Uh, there. I think that, yeah, there was just a very commonly held conception for a long time that the people who did all of those things. Uh, we're being nice, mm-hmm. actually. So you know we have the the entire stolen generation here, which is uh, children that were taken from Aboriginal families because hey, they couldn't possibly be, you know, raising their own children, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's get them into some white families. Let's make them Christian, you know. And so even up until. Uh, even up until I want to say the last ten years, when we had uh, Tony Abbott as prime minister, he was somebody who was still insisting, from a very senior position in public life, that there is no need to besmirch the people who did those things because they were they were doing a kindness. As far as they were concerned, they were doing they were doing a nice thing. They were doing a kindness. They were. They were doing what, as far as they were concerned, was a kind and charitable act. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you know, don't don't be such a disgusting, disgusting woke lord uh, imposing your context about things like kidnapping people's children and taking them away from them forever. Mm-hmm. You know, well, it's the uh, it's it's just the oh well, what if you hurt the feelings of people who are mostly long dead? What really it means is. This hurts my feelings to think about because all the things I'm about are just being really excited. Not, not even being excited about living here. I don't think I don't think most people who claim to be have patriotic particularly care. Um, I think it's just the idea that they could be made to feel bad. They find inherently offensive that someone could ask them to think or do something. And so you know, you get kind of where we are now. And you know, you even think about to even bring this back around to bones, right? It's it's even looking back at a show like Bones, is it's it's just so, it feels sort of just so like, culturally low stakes, and I feel like so that's not the kind it just it's I mean we've talked about this several a few times I think but 
it feels like the kind of thing that just wouldn't get made anymore. I don't know. What do you think about that? And also, I want to know what you're having for breakfast. Um, I haven't had any breakfast yet. <laughs> okay, well, asked and answered. <laughs> uh, did grill up a nice big flank steak last night, though. It had been marinated overnight in soy sauce and uh, red wine vinegar and brown sugar and garlic. It was good. That's delicious. Hmm. My um my mom's gonna be I haven't had a steak in a long time. My mom said uh he's um gonna make one for Christmas Eve. Oh yeah. Uh so to answer your question about the the low stakes, um I think you know that's that's definitely something that we've talked about in the show itself, which is the just the lack of care from the people writing this show in terms of attempting to establish characters, give any kind of weight or consequence to anything that happens. There was a pattern in the writing that we talked about happening over and over again, which was uh, spending an entire episode giving all of the signifiers that a character was going to learn a lesson about something that was happening. And then it would get to 40 minutes into the 42 minute long episode and someone would just turn to that character and say, Hey, that problem has just resolved itself without requiring anything of you mm-hmm. and completely just sucks, you know, any and all oxygen out of the, the episode out of the writing. And most importantly, <laughs> make sure that the characters themselves never have to make any difficult choices, never have to live with any consequences, never have to learn anything, and never have to grow. And, you know, as we all know, that's what makes for good storytelling. Characters that (laughs) don't have an arc, that don't learn anything, that never change. And that's what really made this episode, like, such a a dead fish in the water for me. Um... So, so let's, I mean, you know, we can, sp- we can spend as long or as little as we would like talking about this episode, but yeah. let's, let's give a very brief, a very brief, uh, I guess, synopsis of it, which is uh, episode 21, The Boy with the Answer. And the answer was, uh, this show is not very good. Yes. <laughs> Bones count of 10. Show. Yeah, fine. This is a, this is a new, new thing. Bones count of 10, singular bone count of 10. No, the, 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 the fabled matchup. The planets yeah. aligned. And when the planets align, they, make, they take all of the strange forest wackiness that we've sort of enjoyed discovering and picking apart and clowning over for the last sort of 20 weeks or so. The planets align. When it's a bones count and a bone count that are the same, all that's gone. It becomes a very boring show that I mostly couldn't pay attention to because it was very boring. So... Essentially, what we are treated to in this episode is a a character who I am assuming has come back from a previous season, which I have not and will not be watching. Nope. Uh, don't tell us about it. Yep. Uh, the character is named the Grave Digger. I believe she was a former a former prosecutor, something like that. Why not? Sure. And it turned out she had also been uh, kidnapping and burying people alive uh, and killing them. And that that our Bones crew had solved the case, apprehended her, and were now being called to testify in her trial. Oh, but she uh, tried to serial kill them. Yes. Ooh. Um, you would think 
that maybe they could give that as part of their testimony. I saw her when she kidnapped me and tried to kill me. <laughs> and then they were like, no, d- due to the stupid law rules, that the Bill of Rights, that's not allowed. So, so yeah, like, um, this, this entire episode is a courtroom drama, which is not what the rest of the show is at all. Mm-mm. And... Most importantly, the entire episode hinges around trying to give emotional heft to the characters that they have studiously spent the entire season avoiding giving any kind of emotional development or depth to. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's not true. Once uh, they, they, when they're giving emotional development or depth to them, they're playing the music, you know, the, 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 the depth music that goes on in the background. Like when, like when they protected Booth from having to like, Doubt his unblinking faith in the blood-soaked American Empire. That was emotional depth, right? Yeah. He didn't have to learn anything though, which was cool. That's good. Yeah. They, um, they, they, the emotional depth was thank you protected me from learning anything, which, as far as I'm aware, is the worst thing that can happen to someone. Yes, greatest sacrifice you can make for someone is to learn something on their behalf. <laughs> um. So. So yeah, like uh, it's sort of revealed through. A dream sequence, um, a dream sequence, and a bunch of expositional dialogue that uh, Booth and Hodgins were both uh, attemptedly murdered by this lady. Um, Hodgins is still very scarred about it. Uh, it's making him emotional and unable to do his job properly. But it's also making Bones emotional. And we we open the episode with a big dream sequence of Bones fearfully running around in the dark and finding her friends uh, being, you know, killed and buried alive and herself being buried alive. And it was weird because none of this sort of rang true for me in any sense because, again... The writers have spent the entire run of the show saying, no, no, Bones doesn't have any emotions, which, Mm. depending on the context, is either her greatest strength or her greatest weakness. Indeed. And suddenly in this episode, we're supposed to sort of go, oh, she's, she's very emotional and fearful and compromised, all these sorts of things. And it's just like, well, that's not the character, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all of the sort of emotional heft of the courtroom episode where they have to confront their own vulnerability ends up having the impact of the sort of crowbarred in uh, Toyota segments. You know, yeah, it's, it's, basically. It's, 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 like, it's like one big long product placement for the emotional heft of the characters. It just it fits weird. It doesn't make sense with the rest of the show. No, um, and, and it, it all takes pretty much the form you would expect, which is... Uh, so, so like you were saying, um, there, there is a, a bunch of charges that have been brought against this character. She does, does something, something, uh, where they have, oh, that some of the evidence was obtained without a proper warrant. Mm-hmm. And so the judge dismisses it. Um, so the, the, the grave digger taunts bones on the way out of the room and says, you never found the number because all of the the best villains can't help but incriminate themselves in a courtroom yeah and the thing is right 
if she didn't do this, would have gotten away. Yep. And then, when, then when she was caught, she was surprised. Yeah. Oh, she found the number. <laughs> How did she know to look for the number? <laughs> and again, this it's stuff like that, right? Where it's in some cases, it's clear the writing is so lazy that they were like, "Oh, damn, we've we we've written sort of ten pages into the script and have realized." That we, in order to make this, it's not like a 10 minute episode of TV where they can say, yes, well, of course, we saw this lady. She kidnapped us and tried to bury us. I mean, we're just going to give testimony and that should be fine. No, they have to do some procedural trickery to make that testimony not work. And they said, fuck, if that testimony doesn't work, then how are we going to make the Bones crew catch the bad guy? Okay, so I guess. So it's like, the, it's, it's almost like the co- procedural courtroom version of. The Bones crew goes to follow a lead somewhere, and then the lead comes up dry, and then Angela calls and said, I did computer magic, and we have a new lead. Except it's, this time, because it's a courtroom drama, that phone call has to come from her, from the villain. And I was just sort of it's, one of, it's it's why I say it has the emotional heft of a product placement. It feels like they're just very much going through the motions with it. Mm. I feel like the, there's a certain percentage of words in any bone script that is basically like Chekhov's dialogue. Um, <laughs> okay, go on. It's, it's very, very clear that the only reason it has been inserted is so that they can refer to it later on and say, ha, there is, that is how we found that thing. Because, <laughs> yeah. because the villain turned to me in the courtroom and said, here is the key to convicting me in this <laughs> case. Never figure it out though, idiot. Yeah, there's just in in the same way that we've talked about other episodes where like um you you can deduce who was the murderer by which of the which of the um which of the non-core cast with speaking roles have already been asked if they did the murder and said no. <laughs> like dialogue dialogue comes in like um Dialogue comes in like a Resident Evil boss with like a, a f- zoom in on a flashing red part of their body. <laughs> yeah, she, when, when, the, when the villain makes their victorious speech, their, be- their belly flashes red and that's when Bones knows it's time to ask them if they did it. Ooh. <laughs> she uses her limit break, which is ask if they did it. Yeah. And yeah, so I guess like, um, like you said, uh, the episode attempts to play on everybody's vulnerabilities, everybody's fears that, God forbid, all of their great hard work of inventing evidence um, could just have doubt cast on it by, you know, the, the, one, uh, the one lawyer in the world who is not approaching the case in good faith. <laughs> like um, the, the one, it's, it's like this is the one thing that is interesting about this episode to me and it's funny because the the character who is the serial killer the grave digger is also <laughs> is also a professional uh former prosecutor who is defending themselves in court very funny that's very funny but but that like i guess the implication is that like yeah what if what if somebody attacked this evidence in bad faith and what you wind up seeing is the picture that i have wanted to see the entire time which is what if you held up the completely made up evidence from fucking angela's speaking spell and <laughs> and somebody else in a courtroom went you just made that up 
Uh, and that actually does happen where Angela is like, oh, I, I used, I did magic to a voice recording and we've matched it to her. And then um, the other villain just is, is like, okay, well, I had my own specialist do some stuff to it. And now it sounds like you. Did you kill them? And she's like, oh, no. She's like, no, no, no. My, my magic was good magic. You've done bad magic to the recording. Oh, this is still the previous episode about the witches. I get it. <laughs> um, I only I, use my powers for good. What, what's interesting about this, then, is it heavily implies that, like, all the people the Bones crew, like, arrest and send to trial probably mostly just get off. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they don't put anyone away ever. And furthermore, because, like, they keep, they keep saying, oh, you can't testify. It's like, you can't be expert witnesses because I also kidnapped you indicates a kind of legal theory of change where... You can commit any crime you want so long as you also commit the same crimes against the people who are investigating you. <laughs> well, like, I did wonder about that part because they're like once once they sort of get to what I suppose is meant to be the animating part of this episode, which is that um which is that once once they get some like vital evidence dismissed. It means that the case that the gravedigger is up against is is very likely not going to succeed. So, the question for for the team is: Should we drop that case and instead focus all of our ever, uh, um, all of our efforts on trying to find uh, the victim of an unsolved case that we strongly suspect was this woman, mm-hmm. which they wind up doing, and throughout all of that. Uh, they're all having, you know, their own personal conflicts, and they're all very like uh, testy and and fearful and conflicted and everything. And it's because the person they're investigating tried to murder them. It's because right. the person they're investigating, like, kidnapped them and tried to bury them alive, or in some cases, did bury them alive. And the whole time I'm just like, is there no one else in America who can investigate this case other than someone who was actually a victim of this murderer? Like, the whole way through when they're like, oh, I'm having a lot of trouble with this case due to my massive personal conflict of interest and (laughs) still seething trauma inflicted on me by the person I'm investigating. Uh, well, it's the it's it's the classic thing, right? Uh, and this is, I think, a broader a broader thing, a broader sort of discussion, right? Of the kind of TV that was being made at the time, which was just sort of so insular and self-contained, where the idea that you could make a, a television show called Bones and have another team take the lead on prosecuting something, and have the Bones crew have to like deal with sitting one out, couldn't possibly do that. Because these are the only sort of actors, these are the only people who can, who can act on reality in this sort of heroic universe of uh, the sort of the 2000, of 2000s uh, procedural TV shows. That there is, there are, everything is on rails and there is only, oh, there are only one, there's only one engine. And that engine frequently is the person who the show is named after, like Bones or House or... Um, <laughs> Uh, criminal Minds, named after Doctor Criminal Minds. 
Did you see? Uh, did you see somebody saying a little while ago that were like, "Oh, I just realized that house is a play on homes." Ah, uh, well, <sighs> see that now I know. Fuck um, that! Fucking yeah, <laughs> yes. Fuck off! Fuck off to that! Uh, but it's I, so you know it's it's this it, it's it sort of threw a lot into into relief to me right of just of, of how this how this kind of TV works, how particularly of its time it was, why it's so weird to watch now as well. But um, it actually brings up a question I wanted to ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is, this is to do with Bones Season 5 overall. Uh, uh, do you, do you want, listen to uh, The Worst Idea of All Time? Uh, I have not, you, but I am aware of what it is. So uh, what they do each, each episode, uh, they, do is they, they pick a, a shining light. One thing that they didn't hate about their rewatch of whatever terrible movie they're watching that season. And so I am going to ask you, what was, what was your shining light from season five of the show Bones? Some element of it that you actually enjoyed. Or was there one? Um, hmm. He's shining thing that I enjoyed. I, I definitely feel like the things that I enjoyed were not the things that were designed to be enjoyed <laughs> by the show. <laughs> much That's of my enjoyment <clears throat> much of my enjoyment was ironic uh as as in like the um the incredibly shoehorned in Toyota product placement. Um that was that was just a a, a delight that made me sit up and Clap my hands like a seal, uh, because you could see it coming from so far away as well. Every time, every time there was they were doing a scene in a car, uh, <laughs> it would be like, "Here it comes!" Oh boy, what feature are we going to talk about today? Oh, it's just so so wooden as well. Wouldn't you love to just not care about anything enough to just say, "Sure, I'll read it." You know, you <laughs> yeah, get given fine. those lines, you spend your years in acting school, you get cast in a major procedural. Hey, uh, you need to talk about the Toyota Prius's park assist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, in this one, we just we just got a, a, just a small advertorial about uh, the internal size of this Toyota minivan. And how, yeah, it's great for kids, but it's also excellent for carting around a lot of art supplies. If you also went to art college, if, if you're a if you're a cool young professional who also has a, a busy personal life like me, the minivan actually can be can have many features for you. It's not just for moms, but it's great for them too. Not let's just, just say I won't. Sorry, go ahead. Not just for people with children. You can put other things in there also. <laughs> a car, find killer. Oh. No, no, you have to put in it. The, the Toyota is very helpful. Um, I thought that was that was really fun. So those um, are those are very fun moments. But um, but I, I think I think the thing that um was definitely the sort of uh, biggest picture thing for me was because yeah, I I I do not seek out this this type of television particularly. Um, now, now that's a surprise because when I said, "Hey, let's do a show about it's lockdown. We don't have a lot of stuff going on." Bones season five is on my mind. Let's do a show about Bones season five. I thought we were going to be talking about, you know, recapping the plots, being like, oh, what's going to happen with Booth and Bones' thing, you know? But it turns out all the enjoyment was ironic. 
Yes. Yeah. Weird. Um, no, for me it was, I guess, the the bigger picture. If you're sort of if you're pulling pulling the camera right back and looking at the series as a whole, um, apart from the the stuff that drew you to it in the first place, which was hey, we're out of ideas and we're going to start talking about witches and leprechauns and the mummy, uh, all this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. was, was just seeing the pattern of the writing. Like, it was, it was stunning to me to look at a show which, as we have both said to our absolute shock, uh, is, was apparently one of the most lucrative network television shows in history. Uh, has made hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for the people involved. And to see how formulaic and just insultingly lazy the writing has been throughout this entire season, um, the extent to which watching half of the episodes allows you to to see Nostradamus-like what is going to happen in the back half of any given episode that you watch. Uh, from that point onwards, that the well, patterns are so firmly was, entrenched. Except that one time it was a random, a random guy. That I, th- I still think about that. Where they're like, "Damn!" Turns out it was just random. Well, yeah, like uh, I guess that's the the exception that proves the rule kind of thing. Indeed. Um, but but yeah, the the i guess I guess it's also kind of interesting to be able to observe such a such an internally consistent set of rules for writing of these scripts, despite the fact that from an external point of view, the rules don't make any sense. They're not like um they're not like you know rules that you might establish for something like um it's not like dogme ninety five kind of stuff. Uh, where it's like, you know, if there's music in the scene, it must be emanating from a natural source. Uh, <laughs> like, it's, it's not something like that that you can look at and say, oh, okay, there, there, is, there is an internal logic to this that I can absolutely follow. It's not like, you know, a, a found footage movie uh, where you can look at it and say, well, at any given moment, there has to be a conceivable reason that someone is filming the thing that is happening and there has to be somebody in the scene that is holding the camera, that is filming the thing that you're looking at. Part of the reason that I enjoy found footage horror movies is because there, there is this internally consistent logic to it uh, that obviously involves some, some planning, some, some forethought, uh, some consistency in application from the filmmakers. And it's always really interesting to watch a film that kind of gives up on that idea halfway through um, because it breaks the form. Like, uh, you ever seen the David A. A. movie End of Watch? I, I, I'm really bad at, at film, to be honest. I, I, I don't watch very many films. Busy watching all the seasons of Bones. Um, <laughs> because I'm too busy, yeah, watching older seasons of Bones or, like, re-watching The Venture Brothers. Well, so that one's, that one's like, very very interesting to me to watch as a found footage fan because they start the movie. It's a, it is like a, it's a found footage movie about, um, a, an LAPD officer played by Jake Gyllenhaal and his partner played by Michael Pena. Um, and they start by introducing you to the premise that 
he is carrying around a camcorder. Jake Gyllenhaal is carrying around a camcorder and filming all of this stuff that's happening um, because he is also taking a film class on the side. And he is recording stuff uh, because he wants to have some footage to make like a little documentary or thing for his class for. Uh, he gets, you know, he gets told off by other cops and detectives for having his camera on like crime scenes, filming things he shouldn't be filming. There's scenes where he goes, oh yeah, sorry, and puts it away, you know. And then in the back half of the movie, it's like they just went, you know what, this is a lot of work. And there's there starts to just be like scenes that are being filmed on a handycam just by an unseen third party. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, it's interesting how much it kind of like just breaks the film. It just makes you go, like it, it makes you stop and say, who is filming this? Where's this footage from? What? And like, you know, if it, if it works well, it keeps this internal consistency and rhythm um, that, you know, really keeps you in the film. But as soon as you break it, it also really, really draws attention to itself. So it's very interesting that Bones has its own system in screenwriting of of kind of logic and rules and the way things are going to play out, but they only make sense to the writers of Bones. They don't make sense to anybody else. There's no conceivable reason for writing a show this way. Mm-hmm. You know, the 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 patterns that we that we kept coming on over and over again of Introduce a character who might be a suspect about this murder. The character says, Ooh, I, I have a clear motivation for doing this crime. Uh, I'm insisting that I didn't do it. Uh, the investigators have said that they're going to go away and try to validate this, this excuse that I have given, my alibi. But if it doesn't hold up, they're going to be back for me and I'll be in serious trouble. That character never appears again in the script. No. And this happens yeah. over and over and over again in the show. <laughs> like if <laughs> if somebody is introduced in the first 20 minutes of this show, they did not do the crime. <laughs> or, or or I think that's this is this is mainly true. I think if if someone is suspected in the first 20 minutes of the show, they didn't do the crime. Cuz like some people will cuz sometimes like in the rock and roll fantasy camp one They'll be into the criminal will be introduced in the first 20 minutes, but they'll just be a random extra or they'll just the only reason, you know, that they're going to come back later is that they bothered to pay to give them a speaking part. But it's they'll start generating suspects usually like, oh, like if, if they walk off the off the, the scene of the crime or whatever, Booth will be like, hmm, I bet it was the boyfriend or whatever. And they'll talk to the boyfriend and, inev- and, and it inevitably wasn't him. But what I think you're right to note that. A, g- a good mystery writing you might suspect someone at the beginning but then find out their alibi holds up but then much later on you find out some crucial detail that invalidates that alibi and you can go revisit them right no one who's suspected in the front half of the show ever did it ever it's it's every question has one answer and when you get the answer that's the end of that question that question can now be put down it no longer needs to be investigated yeah, it's not it's not like um it's not like in a I guess much more much more long running and internally consistent show like Law and Order 
uh, where they would go around and talk to people and do, you know, an investigation. And then at a certain point, they would settle on, you know, one, one to like one, two, three people uh, that they were convinced had, you know, a, a motive for the crime and a way in which they could have done it. And then they set about trying to prove or disprove those things, you know. And sometimes, get this, the person who uh, murdered someone in cold blood and dumped their body in a dumpster uh, will say, nope, couldn't have been me. It's actually your job. Uh, <laughs> it's, actually, <laughs> it's actually your job to try and show uh, a jury and a judge that I did the murder and that I should spend the rest of my life in jail because, to be honest, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in jail. And so I will say yep. that I did not do it and hope that you cannot prove that I do it. Mm -hmm. You know? And not in the world of bones. So then, if, there, if, if you think of, like, okay, well, Law & Order was, you know, for all of its faults. I mean, because all of these shows, like, they serve the same social purpose. I think we discussed pretty early on, which is just, it's, it's propaganda for cops. It makes, the, it makes you think that, the, that this is the kind of thing cops do as opposed to, like, harassing minorities and handing out tickets. It makes you think that, like, if you do anything bad, the cops absolutely will come get you uh, because they have magic and so on. In Law and Order, they just have incredible detective skills and unlimited time. In Bones, they have magic um, and, and, and so on and so on. But it, it seems interesting, right, to draw a distinction between a show like Law and Order and a show like Bones or a show like Law and Order and a show like Criminal Minds. Well, I, Law and Order. I will say to, to Law and Order's credit, that they did occasionally, uh, they did occasionally just mix it up by, you know, arresting somebody, saying, "Yep, we've got the whole thing, we've got this case in the bag," and then they would go to court and just get off, mm -hmm. and they'd all go, "That's true." They'd all go, "Fuck." Sometimes that happens, I guess. Yeah. Um, which is not the way it works in Bones. The way it works in Bones is the inverse, which is that you mount an incredibly flimsy case. Uh, based on, you know, computer science, uh, based on, like, <laughs> based on those, like, Taiwanese CGI recreations of news events, uh, and, and somebody saying, oh, yes, there was a groove in this bone that absolutely proves that it was this one knife wielded by a person whose height I can determine uh, based off of, off of this science. Uh, and then it just gets sent off to a courtroom and we all assume that that person is, is righteously going to jail. And, and that's, that's interesting, right? Like, I, I, I tend to keep trying to think about, I mean, I tend to not, I try not to think about Bones much at all, but when I do try to think about Bones, I try to think about it as uh, a, a kind of a historical artifact, a sort of evidence of a time that is sort of so nearby as to go untheorized, but so far away enough as to be distinct, and, which they, they are the late 2000s. Law and Order is a product of the 1990s, and very much a product of the 1990s. And I, I, and, yeah, and, and it's, been, it's been around for a long time, yeah. Yeah. And so it, it's interesting, right, that like, you want to look at like intensification of like broken window policing and all of this stuff um, in, 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 in Law and Order, the idea of the, 
the, the, the police, the thin blue line, et cetera, these, the, the warrior cop mentality that develops in the 1990s, that's all there. But it's in the late 2000s that the tone of policing shifts and we, bec- and we get things like police science. So uh, a, a guest we had on, on TF, we were talking about like you know, decarceration and um, sort of the, the ways in which like sort of cops tend to sort of find and abuse technology and all this, sent me some articles about like to, about towards defining a discipline of study called police science where, you know, it might have been, there might have been the application of science to police work for a while, but the discipline itself of police science sort of is very much a product of the early to mid 2000s. I may even link, um, if, in case you're interested, I'll link it in the, um, in, in, in the show notes where it's, uh, it's, a, it's an article um, published by the Harvard Kennedy School um, called New Perspectives in Policing or Police Science Toward a New Paradigm. It's published in 2011, but like a lot, and a lot of the early literature is in the ni- late 1990s, but it begins to get defined as a discipline through the early 2000s. And, you know, and, and that's what I think when you see the change from law and order to CSI. And from C and 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 you get and from CSI to then almost the um uh, shows like Bones or Criminal Minds or whatever almost kind of prefiguring the tone that the Marvel movies would have if you, if you get my meaning. Now it's funny that you say that because uh, in the last last week or so, last uh, week or two, I've been playing the PS4 game. Marvel's Spider-Man, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of, I guess you know, it's it's very definitely a Marvel product. Uh, it has Marvel very largely on the box, um, but it is also because it's like a, a Sony thing. Um, I'm sure you're aware of all of the sort of copyright back and forth over the Spider-Man character between Sony and Marvel Studios, which is why. Um, you know, they had their own separate Amazing Spider-Man movies and then with enough wrangling, he kind of popped up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, all that sort of stuff. But, but it mm-hmm. still has the Sony logo on it, basically. So he's kind of separate but parallel to uh, all of that other stuff. And it was interesting to me playing it because I know it's been out for a while, but, um, but I, I borrowed it off a friend. Uh, so the price was right. And it was very interesting to play because as I was playing it, I remembered some of the stuff that people were talking about at the time when it came out, which is some of the some of like the missions in the game involve you doing things like um, going around. You know how in Assassin's Creed you would climb up to a tall point of something and it would it would like open up more stuff on the mini map kind of thing. Yes. Um, So similar thing here, except that you are. Uh, unscrambling like corrupted signals from these sort of comms towers on top of police stations, which are put there by uh, a big corporation, which has given them to the police, and the police use them to monitor uh, everybody's communications and all that sort of stuff. And Spider-Man's like, "Yes, I'll fix these for you," and then also I can tap into them and use them to <laughs> see crimes that are happening and all that sort of thing, and. <laughs> And a lot I of think people I played are, a little bit of this game. 
Yeah, and a lot of people at the time went, hey, what's up with the whole uh, Spider-Man helping to enable like a, a, a mass uh, police surveillance state kind of thing? And it's, it's just interesting to see the, the difference in that sort of, you know, 10, 15 years makes in this sort of stuff. Because if this came out in the time period that we are talking about, that would be looked at completely uncritically, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But as it is now, people are now looking at this stuff and saying, huh, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel so much playing a game where uh, this person is like uncritically dedicated to assisting NYPD officers. <laughs> 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 and which, which like as a person who, you know, read Spider-Man comics growing up and that kind of thing, I think that this stuff is like, true to the character or the the sort of origins of the character in the sense that he what he jogs around New York City trying to trying to help people out and helping the cops and all that sort of stuff. But um but it's very interesting the difference that time makes in people looking at these things and saying, ah, this sure is uh like there's a lot of stuff in the in the game where there's a there's a cop that you talk to as you're doing stuff, and she says, "Hey, there's something happening here with all these criminals, but we can't get a warrant without cause or without whatever." Spider Man goes, mm-hmm. "Cool. In that case, I will go in uh, and beat the shit out of all of these guys and web them all up. And then once you've heard the gunshots, you will have probable cause to come in." And so, like, just a huge part of the gameplay throughout this thing is helping the police uh, who don't have an appropriate amount of evidence to come in and search a place. <laughs> I can use my web slingers to plant some coke on him. Yeah, yeah. He says, uh, he says during uh, one of the sort of like randomly generated crime events happening during the thing, he like is breaking up a drug deal and he says, drug dealing, the worst kind of crime there is. <laughs> That's right. Which I think would make a lot of people say, the worst? The worst one? The very worst one? The, the Geneva Convention against guys who drive Audis around really slow in East London. And, uh, and so now uh, I believe we are right sort of on the, on the cusp of, or it has been released, the, the new PlayStation 5. And the same company has made a new game, um, Spider-Man Miles Morales. And I was reading a review about this, which was saying, hmm, uh, all the way through this, like, there's, there's like, Black Lives Matters murals in the game. And there's, like, a scene where a bunch of cops, where, like, some cops take out their guns and point them at a, like, a, uh, not in his superhero costume, Miles Morales, who is a uh, young black character. And other people in the game, like characters on the street, start to scream and take out their phones and record it. Uh, but also, so they have stuff like that in the game, but also it seems like they're constantly on the verge of having something to say about racial inequality in America, and then they just kind of don't. Yeah. Uh, so, so the general thing being, it seems extremely cynical to include that stuff, while also never actually making any kind of political stance about it through your game Mm. um and these are the things that i guess people actually consider and talk about now when they assess 
these sorts of arts and entertainment that people ask for money in exchange for. Yeah, well, unlike, I mean, you, you... <laughs> unlike the good old <laughs> days <laughs> where you just had to take whatever the fuck they gave you on network TV. <laughs> well, even you, you're, I'm, I'm sort of put in mind of the, um, the left-wing black veteran who uh, was like shamed and threatened by Booth into just like you know, giving up his uh, radio show where he reads Rage Against the Machine lyrics um, on, on the basis of, hey, why don't, why, don't, why don't you be more like you were when you were a soldier? All that kind of thing, you know? And I, I again, like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be the kind of, I, I don't, I don't want to sort of take the position of all the media has to be moral and the media has to be good. And if people consume media that's immoral, then they're going to become immoral, which I think is a silly position. Uh, it's, it's, it is in itself a very liberal idea. This idea of like, um, that uh, you can't have an antihero or a villain, or else you'll want to be like them. You can't see. A, it, it's, we, have to, we have to make sure we have our wholesome messages and so on. I think what's interesting about this and about this transformation of like the way that police officers are portrayed in media that's just supposed to be fun. You know, it's not that that it's not supposed to be deadly serious. Because like Bones is, you know, it's it's a drama, but it's a, it's it's a comedy. It's a comedy drama. It's not a comedy in the way it thinks it's a comedy, of course. But it's supposed to be a fun show. Spider-Man games are supposed to be fun. Not supposed to be. They're not supposed to be textbook. I think what's more interesting is looking at them as artifacts that, as they're trying to appeal to a wide variety of people. So it is what these designers or showrunners or whatever think is going to appeal. It's like if one of the ways that economists get people to answer honestly is they don't say what social class are you or whatever. They say what would other people think your social class is. So they ask you to look at yourself through the eyes of someone else. Mm. And much the same way, I think you can tell, I think you can sort of, if, you, if you're interested in the way that these, these things, the, the things we don't think about, the ideas that go unthought of, um, the way those develop, the way those become ideas that are thought of, it's in the entertainment products that are supposed to be light that you can find that because because the, the writers aren't thinking, what should we say? They're, they're often thinking, what do we think we or people like us, or what do we think other people would like to see? So there's that act of trying to imagine yourself as someone else and then entertaining that other person. And I think that creates a lot of accidental honesty. And when you're at the, tower, when you're at the commanding heights of media, because you know, the show Bones at season five is a very silly show. I think it's very ephemeral. I think no one really remembers it. I, you know, I mean, except us and the people listening to it. Um, that is still like one of the most commercially successful shows in history. Um, and it's still, there is a lot you can tell, I think, about the ideas that were floating around kind of unquestioned. And, and, and it's, it's that you can almost trace the idea of like the material base almost, I guess, of, um, sort of unthinking liberalism, the idea of a liberalism that doesn't have to account for itself because its institutions are self-evidently functional, right? You can look at the breakdown of that between sort of Bones, the way that sort of police, policing and justice is portrayed in a show like Bones, where it's at the very pinnacle of police science, where there's, no, there's no dirt, there's not even, there aren't really, where crime isn't even a sort of a, a social issue or whatever. It's just Puzzles that are figured out by magic, basically. It is liberalism at its most, like I say, arrogant in as much that it feels like 
it doesn't need to be accounted for. There needs there you don't need to account for the police because the police are obviously good. You don't need to account, you don't need to worry about oh they need warrants or whatever because if they know they're good then well they don't actually really need a warrant. The warrant's sort of pro forma. Um, and anyone the, the warrant is an impediment it, put in their way. <laughs> yeah, it's a pro forma impediment. And so it's not that these shows about institutions say all institutions are great because it's just valorizing one or another. So, you know, bureaucracy of the justice system might not be good, but the investigative force of the police is something that, you know, like I said, doesn't need to be accounted for. It doesn't need to be criticized and so on and so on. And that comes out. And if you again, if you want to look at that Spider-Man game or whatever, um, it's again, doesn't need to be accounted for. It's just something you don't need to think about that when you're writing something that is meant to make millions and millions and millions of dollars. It's not meant to be academically interesting or push any boundary. It's meant to not do that. And so that's why this kind of cultural ephemera is if you want to trace, if you want to trace certain ideas and sort of muse about their causes, I think there's sort of almost no better place to look at that in like, you know, um, corporate, corporate filings and you know, uh, economic reports. It's that and this. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, um, I guess in closing, I would say that I, I kind of feel like Bones holds the, holds a place that is analogous in television to the place that Avatar holds in cinema, hmm. uh, which is, you know, ironic considering right. the, <laughs> ironic <laughs> considering right. the cross promotional episode <laughs> about Avatar in the episode of Bones from this season. <laughs> so so a nice bit of parallel there in the sense that they both were huge financial successes um made absolute gobs of money and just have no recognizable lasting cultural impact at all in any way yeah. uh you watch them and you can feel your brain getting smoother by the minute <laughs> there is it, I, I was thinking about this it is purely it's content it's not art, it's content. And that's what made Avatar so weird. It was a billion dollars or however much it made cost to make of content. Bones was hundreds of millions of dollars of content. You know, very pro forma, sort of just filling in the time. And Well, I suppose it, I suppose the interesting thing with Avatar, by comparison, is that I'm I'm sure that James Cameron thought that he that this was his like his his treaty about environmentalism and about saving the world and loving nature and everything. It's it just happens that everybody on Earth who saw it said, "Hey, this is just Pocahontas with blue guys." <laughs> Unobtainium. <It's>, uh, <laughs> that's very funny. Uh, it's partly it's partly. I think that's that's part of it. I think the other part is just that like it's um. It's when, when stories become disconnected from the world around them, when, when there is sort of no, when you can't connect it, when you cannot yourself connect to it, and when you can't use it as a lens to connect to something else, when it is purely a one-way flow of information, then I think that's one of the things for me that differentiates content from art is that lack of fundamental humanity the lack of some i guess i i say the word connection the the lack of 
you identify yourself with it or you identify yourself with someone else through it you know well, this is well the thing that the, the thing that i feel like we we the way that we described bones multiple times in mm-hmm. in plot in execution in character development was as being completely frictionless mm-hmm. which is totally true in the sense that there is no way to grab onto it there's nothing to hold mm-hmm. um, there's nothing to take away from the show you know there is there's nothing about it that might make you think Ah, oh, my conceptions have been challenged in some way. I have learnt something about this character or the world or myself. Uh, there is something that caused me to have some type of self-reflection. I cannot imagine a single thing from a single second of this season of this TV show. <laughs> it would have made anybody say, you know what? It, like they turn off the TV at the end of the episode and say, you know what? This has really made me think that I should sit down with my dad, look him right in the eye and say, you're going back to that retirement home. <laughs> well, this is, there's, I, I get up from watching Bones. I sit down and reflect on what I've seen. I look up and I say, at 2.9% APR, the value and fuel mileage on a Toyota Prius 2009 cannot be beat. My child looks me in the eyes. Uh, tells me that their heart is bursting with love for me. And I say, I don't know what that means. <laughs> what a catchphrase. Oh. Because <laughs> uh, I, I can't see the... Dear listener, I cannot see the computer. Uh, Andrew, how, how, what time are we at? We are one hour and 13 minutes. And also, we are at me needing to go and start my day at work. <laughs> so, um... I guess we can say uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to the penultimate episode of uh, Boney Island Whitefish, where we reflect on just exactly what is schlock culture and uh, why is it why is it at least interesting, if um, if nothing else. Uh, and I guess thank you for taking this this uh, this journey with us through season five and season five alone of. <laughs> uh, the American procedural crime drama, Bones. I don't think they made any other seasons. Nope. And if they-, they just very confusingly called this one season five and introduced a bunch of characters I was meant to know something about. That's right. Um, and the, the traditional uh, the, 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 the slogan of the Boney Island Whitefish, of course, don't know, won't learn about any of the other seasons. But hey, don't despair. Because there is one more episode of season five of Bones left. We will be watching it together and we will watch it with, well, separately, but then we'll be talking about it together. And, and, and we are very excited for you to join us next week to close out this chapter of this uh, strange um, project. Which, by the way, uh, Andrew, uh, for penultimate episode wrap up, thank you. Thank you for joining me on this strange journey through <laughs> awful television. Yep. You and me. Interlocking our fingers and driving off the cliff of TV from 2009. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.